Bank Talk features thought leadership interviews with bank and credit union executives. If you are the CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. Learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host, and today we are uh, wrapping up our conversation with Pete Wilder of Godfrey and Kahn, uh, discussing mergers, acquisitions, and a bunch of various other topics that I think everybody should be finding interesting. Uh, if you haven't li- listened to the previous episode, you may want to do that first to just uh, be able to grab this this uh, interview in context. So thank you for joining us, and let's get started. Okay, uh, welcome back to Bank Talk. Uh, today I have with me uh, Pete Wilder. Uh, Pete's an attorney with uh, the Banking and Financial Institutions Practice Group at uh, the law firm of uh, Godfrey and Kahn. Pete, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Charlie. I want to spend a couple of minutes around this trend of uh, credit unions acquiring mm-hmm. banks and just get your perspective on it, why it's occurring. You know, just a, a couple of minutes on that. It seems to be a, you know, if you read through some of the industry publications, either on the credit union side or the bank side, seems to be a lot going on there. And I know, you know, there's a, a bit of a, you know, bad taste maybe in the bank's mouths related to the fact that, uh, well, related to tax preferential sure. no, you, uh, treatment and that type of thing. You, so, uh, but uh, if you could just give me a perspective on that. Yeah, that's, um, we've been involved in those transactions representing banks. And in fact, Wisconsin, where we are, has seen quite a bit of this activity relative to the rest of the country. There's been a lot down in like Georgia and Florida too. Um, Wisconsin happens to be sort of a hotbed or has been the last few years. It continues. I mean, and, and, and there, there's, I guess, levels of issues here. You know, at a, at a very high level, you know, there's debate among some of the states whether or not this is even permissible. You know, we saw, saw I guess, last year, the year before in Colorado, Colorado regulator declined an application like this. Iowa, there was a bit of a kerfuffle um, over a bank, over a credit union, just sort of you know, closing on a bank acquisition without sort of getting full regulatory approval. So there, there's at the state regulatory level, there's there's been sort of a you know some some issues. You know, obviously from a trade association level, you know the banking trade groups don't like this generally because credit unions do have an advantage when they're pricing these deals because they're looking at the earnings stream they're going to get from the bank and they get to take into account when they're doing their projections the fact that they're not going to pay any income tax on those on those earnings, whereas other banks who might be potential acquirers for the seller do have to factor in, you know, the income tax. So they just can't compete and pay the premium that maybe a credit union can. Now, credit unions have other issues. They got to kind of gross up the, the, the purchase price because of some of the tax issues associated with how they're structured. But all that sort of aside, there's, again, it's, it's, it's more of sort of the similar argument that folks have, have been um, obviously hearing that there's an un, un, unequal playing field here. And it's you know disappointing for banks that want to acquire. They, they're missing out on opportunities that they could have maybe gotten in on in years past that, that, they, that they feel like they can't you know, now. Credit unions on their side, they like it. It's opportunity. It's you know, all those other things. The flip side of that from the banking industry has been, you know, listen, you know, there are just some banks out there that don't don't have any obvious buyers and credit unions are sometimes the outlet for them. You know, an outlet that gives them the best premium and is the best thing for their shareholders. So at the end of the day, you know, that's where we are right now. There's certainly been an increase in that activity. 
and and I think it's not going to stop anytime soon, especially with smaller community banks that are looking to sell. They typically want cash uh, uh, when they sell and not stock. And of course, that's all the credit unions can pay. They don't have stock, so they pay cash. And and that's just a that's you know from a fiduciary perspective, if you're a bank seller, um, that's one of the struggles that bank boards have is. Yeah, do we need to go talk to credit unions um, to see if they're interested or not? And that's um, that's going to be an issue that continues, Charlie. It, yeah, just... gotcha. So it, it comes down to valuation, right? That's the, right. The fact that you know the difference in the tax base or the way you're thinking about uh, being taxed in the future mm-hmm. leads to uh, you know uh, them viewing it as a higher valuation. That's right. Right. I mean, okay, got it. Good, good, helpful. Let's spend without going into too much detail. Let's spend just a little bit of time around what the elections, the recent elections, may have meant, or, or you know, possibly even now might mean to bank valuation. And just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, happy to. I guess everybody who's listening out there who may listen in the future, right now where we are is, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in Georgia. I think so. The the at least the Senate seems like it's going to stay under Republican control. Uh, there's this outside chance maybe that that um, the two Democrats could win in the runoffs or whatever, and um, it could flip to the to Democratic control. It doesn't look like it's probably going to happen. The issue was what's going to happen to tax rates, especially if there's a Democratic sweep um, and they control both houses, the presidency, you know, et cetera. The issue was, you know, it's been pretty clear that you know the the Biden tax plan could start poking around at things like the estate tax um, for uh, for family, which is 11.6 million per person right now. You know, 22, 23 million for a married couple. It's never gone down. It's only gone that estate tax exemption has only gone up over time at a federal level. It's never gone down. And there was a question of you know would that come down and could that affect families and their their state estate and tax planning. And in addition to that, you know what's going to happen with cap gains rates? There was also a discussion that maybe capital gains rates would go up to ordinary income rates. That could impact if a bank sells for cash, all of a sudden you're not getting taxed at cap gains, it's ordinary income. You know, what's going to what's gonna happen there? So I think if the if there's still a, a sort of a split among the parties in Congress, you know, some of the more dramatic tax consequences, you know, may, may not come to fruition, but we just don't know right now what's going to happen. And it's, it's almost a wait and see, which is another reason, you know, from an M&A perspective, you know, you can rush and try and sell your bank at this point, but you're not going to get it done before you're in. Um, we're in November now. That's not practical. And, you know, what's going to happen? We don't know what's going to happen, you know, later as far as, as tax, new tax legislation. So it's it's really a wild card right now, Charlie, that we're watching very closely and could have a real impact either of a cooling off on, it, on M&A activity or it could accelerate it next year, too. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. And to be honest, it sounds like most of it is probably on the seller side. When you talk about estate tax, you talk about you, uh, you know any capital gain side, right? It's a yeah. well, yeah, you know what, what's going to happen if I sell, and you know what does that mean to my my family's future if I'm yeah, a, we, you know, we we do you know. I do an opportunity cost assessment for for banks oftentimes, especially the family owned ones, and say okay, what if you sold the bank right now? Let's let's see what's your basis, what's your you know, SRC corp, how are we going to do this? And we do a you know after tax, you know what would the net proceeds be? And then what kind of return would you need to get on those proceeds to match what you're getting on your bank investment? It, it could be a very helpful exercise for, for planning purposes. You know, right now, if all of a sudden, you know, that tax you know, the, the, isn't cap gains tax anymore, it's ordinary income. You know, what that ultimately, when you flow it all through, could mean that keeping that bank investment is a way better strategy than liquidating it and trying to invest it somewhere else. You're just not going to find a return anywhere close to what they're getting out of the bank. So it may have the effect of 
you know, just less sellers in the marketplace. And if you got less sellers, you know, there's just less, less activity. I mean, activity that's going to happen. Back in the day, you'd see, a, you know, an investor come in or just a family come in and buy the bank from another family. These days, that seems to be, I mean, your options in selling seem to be maybe, you know, go look for another bank, uh, go look for a credit union. I don't know what other options there are. Are you seeing any activity outside of M&A sort of, you know, as far as acquisitions go? Is there anything going on behind the scenes that's not M&A activity because it's not one bank buying another, but family or another investor sweeping in just to pick up the purchase of the bank? Yep, very little of that. You're right. It's it's much harder today than it used to be for, for example, a management buyout or, you know, another private investor. But there is some of that, especially with smaller charters. Instead of a, you know, instead of a, a group trying to go start a de novo bank somewhere, you know, trying to find a small charter to acquire instead uh, to skip the de novo process. So we do see some of that happening. But the reality is, if you're the seller, you know, what's what's the least risky easiest, most efficient way to cash out, if that's what you're looking to do, it's to find another, you know, established bank or credit union if they, if they go that route um, and sell it. I mean, that's, there's the least amount of risk. It's going to be the quickest and uh, the most certain, you know, path. We do see with family-owned banks, again, I, I don't know if you call it, you know, acquisition or whatever, but, you know, there there is a strategy for transitioning ownership from one generation to the next generation. And it comes with some very sticky issues sometimes because it's, you know, maybe it's mom and dad who own the bank now uh, or grandma and grandpa own the bank and they pass it down to three siblings and then they've all had three kids each. And, you know, it used to be just, you know, grandma and grandpa owned it. Now you've got, you know, 12 cousins all with with various interests in what they want. And some want to cash out because they now live in a different part of the country and have their own families and they got to send people to kids to college and they have a health issue or whatever. And then you've got other family members who are actually running the bank who don't want that. And that creates some challenges with how do you you finance and some of those family members who would like to get out um, and still not over leverage the bank and make sure that, you know, the family legacy continues on. We do see some of that going on too, Charlie. That are that are interesting uh, situations. To work yeah, that would that would make a lot of sense. I suppose is is you know the for you to maintain control, you've you got to have some buyout clauses built in there so that you know the your third cousin can't sell his share and all of a sudden the family doesn't own the bank anymore or you don't have you know controlling interest or whatever. I suppose right. Yep. Yeah, good point. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. I I appreciate your perspective on this stuff, Pete. Last question for you, I think, before we wrap up here. You know, you, you go through a, an M&A tran- transaction, and I would imagine that there's probably some things that your customers wish they would ask before they got to you. But, you know, is there anything else we need to cover here for, you know, anybody either interested in buying, selling? You know, what type of, are there other landmines out there? Are there other things that they should be thinking about when planning something like this? There are several. My My, my general... My, my general advice on that is start early, be thoughtful and methodical. Don't just do M&A activity because that's what it seems like everybody else in the industry is doing. There's a lot of shooting from the hip that goes on. It, it shouldn't. So get your team, you know, who's your advisor, who's your accounting firm, who's your lawyer, who's whatever, and start having these strategic discussions. Like what's your plan? You know, have that strategic discussion a couple of years before, you know, you're out there, you know, doing some of this stuff. The example, and this is right up your alley, Charlie, in your world, you know, your core contract. I mean, that continues to be one of the number one issues um, that we run into on the buy or sell side that a, a bank says, well, we're ready to sell. And then you you ask them, they say, well, we just signed an eight-year contract with, you know, Jack Henry and the termination fee is going to be, you know, $2 million or some crazy thing. 
And it's like, well, geez, that, you know, all of a sudden the economics don't make a lot of sense anymore. You know, what are you going to do? And, and you really put yourself in an awkward position. So even if you don't think you're ever going to buy or sell somebody, you know, sort of paying attention to those issues, the reality is we have a consolidating industry. You may be a buyer or seller in, over the next five or 10 years and just not know it right. Paying attention to your court contracts or other types of contracts, employment agreements, changing control agreements, other compensation and benefits, just understanding the impacts that those can have on an M&A transaction that could end up saving literally millions of dollars um, you know, later on. So start early, be thoughtful, and make sure you've got sort of your team in place for if you know an opportunity and you know arises at some point. Yeah, and in a scenario like that where you've got a contract, you know, let's say it's a, a core contract or a technology contract or something, there's a termination fees as an example that are related to that. That's just going to drive your value down, right? In other words, in other words, the purchase price just went down That's by right. that dollar amount. Am I, am yeah, I, the, yeah absolutely. I mean, the buyer's not going to pay you more just because you have a termination fee of a million dollars on your core contract. They're going to pay you the same amount. That money, even if they say, well, we'll, we'll take on that contract and pay it off. Uh, sometimes that happens. The buyer will kind of assume it and then terminate it at some point or whatever. They know they're assuming that big termination fee too. So they're just going to pay you less. I mean, that money is coming out of your, the seller's shareholders pockets every time, no matter how it's structured. Um, so you're right. It just drives the value down. Yeah, it's a, that's a very interesting dynamic. Back, I used to work with one of the large vendors and there were, you know, with all the acquisition activity that's going on, there was always discussions around how do we structure this to, because again, you know, th- the scenario I'm thinking about is, you know, a Jack Henry bank Jack buys a Jack Henry bank and one of them has got termination fees and the money might stay with the Jack, you know, with Jack Henry in right. general, right? Th- those become really sticky sort of transactions that I think, you know, the, a lot of times banks maybe are just aren't uh, capable of, of talking yeah. through in the same terminology that the, that the vendor yeah. is. So um, that's probably one of, of, of multiple that you, know, you get as, as part of uh, your due diligence, I suppose, as you're going yeah, through this. We, we have seen, I'll say one more on that piece. Um, we have seen some success, and not always, we have seen some success in getting the right person involved if, if there is a big termination fee or something else. You know, sometimes those, frankly, aren't enforceable, or there's other issues in the contract. We have seen either the right lawyer, the right consultant, the right you know whoever with the right relationship sort of get in to the right person um, at one of the cores and say, hey, what's going on here? This isn't right. And and be able to negotiate something, but you can't count on that. Usually the contract is what it is and they're going to hold you to it. Yeah. Well, give me a call. (laughs) We'll talk about it. (laughs) You're on my list. Thanks for having me, Charlie. And uh, nothing else from my perspective. We're Obviously happy to help. Find my contact information, I'm sure, somewhere. It's Godfrey and Khan is our firm to, in, in Milwaukee. And my email is pwilder, P-W-I-L-D-E-R, at G-K-L-A-W uh, dot com. Uh, you'll find other stuff there. We write a thing called Bank Strategy Briefing. We we do a, sort of an annual M&A prediction along with other things. We talk about consolidation in the industry and what the actual data is. We really believe in community banking and, and, and want to see it. We want to see community bankers thrive. Great perspectives. Uh, appreciate your time, Pete. Happy to do it. Thank you, Thanks Charlie. for joining us. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Pete, for joining us. And for those of you who listened all the way through, I pre- we appreciate your patience. Uh, this ended up being a two-episode uh, discussion around mergers, acquisitions, and valuations. Thank you for joining us again on Bank Talk, and keep on learning.
You have reached the end of part two of two of Pete Wilder's interview. To reach Pete, email him at pwilder, W-I-L-D-E-R, at gklaw.com. Thank you for listening to Bank Talk Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Remedy Consulting. Check us out at remedyconsult.net or banktalkpodcast.com.